0: You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This is the MIT Alumni Books podcast, and I'm Joe McGonigal. There are nearly 90,000 total governments in the United States, with a new one born every 18 hours. In Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest, published in March by Cambridge University Press, Mark Zupan, PhD, class of 87, suggests that the role of government in this country tends to exceed an efficient level. Zupan, who studied economics at MIT and is co-author of two other books on microeconomics, was named in 2016 as Alfred University's 14th president. I reached Zupan by phone and asked him why he chose to write this book now and who its intended audience is.
1: It's intended for Individuals with an interest in the political process, whether scholars or everyday citizens, if you wonder about why we don't get the outcomes, we think we should. Hopefully shed some light on why we do get the outcomes that we do.
0: You you talk about inside jobs in government, in democracies and autocracies. Uh, You've researched state and local governments, uh, unions, uh, corporations, nonprofits, and i imagine there's some curating you had to do there's a lot that you did not include i imagine
1: it is amazing how long it takes to strengthen the arguments and what how to be most consistent with the data out there but also how to make the most compelling arguments based on the data and fundamentally i'm a course 14 graduate so as an economist we look at things from the perspective of markets, so when we analyze politics, we, we view it as a market where the good that's being bought and sold is transfers of wealth. And on the demand side are interest groups that are vying for policy changes to that will favorably impact them wealth transfer-wise, and on the supply side are the rulers, the elected officials, the bureaucrats that can produce those favorable wealth transfers. And this model's largely grown up in the last 50 years, so during an era when democracy's been on the rise, We've applied this model, uh, and we see breakdowns at the expense of the public interest. Most frequently, we've looked at the demand side. We've posited that it's an interest group on the demand side, whether it's one percenters, producers, consumer interest groups, environmentalists that have co-opted the system for their advantage and the, at the expense of the broader public But what we haven't focused enough attention on, and this is the core point of the book, is that the supply side also matters. Those individuals have the means, the motive, and the opportunity, all three things that investigators look for when they're investigating a crime. And they also are human beings, like the individuals on the demand side. They're capable of very noble deeds, but also less than noble deeds. They're capable of co-opting the system for their advantage and at the expense of the public interest. And had we looked more broadly over time, and this is something the book uh, seeks to broaden our perspective on, before democracy was on the rise, we we lived in a world largely of autocracy, of uh, monarchies. And there, uh, we we would have an entirely different perspective. Like Louis XIV, who said, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. We would view the rulers as the ones basically owning the state and all its citizens, and this view that the supply side has co-opted the system like the Bourbons did would come very naturally. But it's a perspective that applies both in autocracies that still exist, that uh, historical ones, but it's something that also c- occurs in democracies.
0: Are you tempted to add a chapter in the next edition about draining the swamp? I'm, I'm just reading headlines every day right now, and we've certainly been hearing that rhetoric quite a bit. You have one reference to the current president in the book, and it's a minor one. How how do you unpack the psychology of Donald J. Trump in the White House?
1: The book was largely written before the advent of Trump, so there are more references to people like Marco Rubio and Hillary Clinton. That's when I was writing the book. The topic has certainly become more germane with Trump's advent. Um, when you look at uh, the annual... Uh, surveys of American citizens done by the Pew Research Center. Uh, And uh, citizens will will get asked, uh, do you trust the government all of the time, most of the time, none of the time? And we're at an all-time low right now in the percentage of citizens that trust the government most of the time or all of the time. It's 19% currently. The high point uh, was in the 60s when the survey was launched. In 1966, 77% of American citizens that were surveyed said we trust government all, or, all the time or most of the time. And I, I believe that uh, disaffection with government, the suspicion, um, explains the rise both of Trump and the Republican Party and Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side. And what we're seeing now unfold with the Trump administration, it's it's a different thing once you're in the swamp from uh, once you're casting stones from outside the swamp. And this is something our founders worried about. Uh, Madison in a, a famous uh, essay number 51 of the Federalist Papers said, the first imperative, we need to set up um, an effective government, a government that can control the citizenry. Uh, Because compared to anarchy, uh, the founders knew that uh, you needed effective government. But then it goes on, the essay saying, as soon as we do that, then we have to figure out the checks and balances that'll help us Control the folks that are within government, and and we're seeing those checks and balances, like in previous administrations, arguably even more nowadays, get tested uh, currently. And uh, it'll uh, they've endured uh, from uh, um, uh, both parties' um, attempts to test whether it's uh, federal uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt trying to uh, stack the Supreme Court uh, to some of the current challenges uh, with the Trump administration. You mentioned the the income tax
0: was not a, an original part of the, the Framer's vision for a central federal government, and it's only, what is it, 100 years old. supermajority votes that, that did a pretty good job for a while of stacking the deck against insiders. Um, even recently, the, what was it, the abolishment of the filibuster rule was a good example of insiders, or you know one party at least, trying to line things up in their favor,
1: right? Correct even um, looking, let's say, at my home state of New York, in public investments can do a lot of good. And um, the state of New York became the empire state largely due to a public investment, the Erie Canal. I used to live in Rochester, New York, and that city was basically put on the map by the Erie Canal. Uh, New York was the fifth most populous state at the start of the United States. New York City was not the most populous city, uh, but within... A few years of the Erie Canal getting established, within two years the public investment is repaid and it lowers uh, transportation costs uh, by 90%. Uh, Its impact still to this day is felt in in New York where in upstate New York 80% of citizens live within 30 miles of the Erie Canal. The railroads, when they start making an advent, uh, diminish the impact of the Erie Canal. The advantage provides. New York, though, maintains largely its advantage through the 40s, and then starts to fall off the rails. It becomes less the Empire State when it becomes the high tax state, uh, both state taxes and added uh, city taxes in the in the city of New York. So, New York City.
0: You talk about Robert Moses, uh, some great city leaders in New York history, and. Even though I mentioned to Boston's Michael Curley in there, rewriting and writing the rules to favor themselves, maintain their their powers, but doing some good at the same time. Cyrus Vance, the district attorney, winning these huge awards against banks, settlements. They're a double-edged sword to every one of those, I suppose.
1: They're the same human beings that populate the supply side as the individuals on the demand side. When you look at the steps taken by a Nelson Mandela, or an Ataturk in Turkey, or a Lee Kuan Yew, or even a Robert Moses that uh, does many positive things for the general interest. But there are still some residual effects uh, of him pursuing his own individual goals that arguably came at the public expense, losing, for example, the Dodgers and the Giants to the West Coast because he wanted to force both teams into a a common stadium in Flushing Meadows, or even his animus against public transportation. Every time I'm trying to get between New York City and LaGuardia, uh, I mutter something under my breath against Robert Moses because none of the buses can go. He designed the um, overpasses so they specifically were going to be low enough not to permit buses to travel underneath. So we we live with his uh, uh, the consequences of uh, some of his objectives uh, to this day.
0: You even you even cite uh, your your family's own story: your father um, uh, leaving Yugoslavia behind under the autocratic rule of Marshal Tito, who in, in some versions of history was the greatest leader of Yugoslavia ever, but uh, not in your father's opinion.
1: Individuals are multifaceted. They have uh, Tito certainly held together the country and uh, kept uh, certain animosities uh, in check that uh, when he died, uh, the whole thing blew sky high. You could argue the same thing with uh, Hussein, that there were some positive things in terms of what he did uh, in Iraq by keeping factions, but then um, on the other side, all the gassing, the exterminating political opponents, and uh, Tito had uh, m- many uh, darker aspects along similar lines, so it's, uh, it's not that you can paint everything black and white, but uh, there were certainly many things about his reign that didn't serve the public interest.
0: I heard a saying this week that for every equation you provide in a book, you cut your readership in half. Well, you only provide us with one equation, and it's P equals GSI, or the profit insiders can acquire is equal to the gains times the slack that the demand side allows times the interest in the insiders have in acquiring the profit. For the mathematicians among the listeners here, give us a radical example of a high P or, or one of a you know, zero P.
1: One of uh, is zero P, and uh, it depends on how much slack policymakers have. That's the S on the right-hand side of the equation, how much interest they have in exploiting the slack. So even though there may not be checks and balances, if uh, rulers are principled, they may not. They may opt not to exercise that slack pursuing their interest uh, at the expense of the broader public. And, and G is uh, how much there is to gain. And that depends on the size of government. So conceivably profit, and there was a ruler, um, Krosos, uh, several hundred years ago who argued that I should make the economy as profitable as possible and then figure out a way to scoop out the rents through uh, the taxes I can impose on the system for the benefit of those in power. So there are times where growing the economy may be aligned with the profit um, rulers can take. In general, uh, their costs, uh, they're what economists call leaky buckets after Arthur Oaken, who was the chief economic advisor under under Lyndon Johnson, so that that create certain frictions every time you try to grow the economy but then scoop out the rents. Uh, And one of the other fundamental conclusions of the book you get less P in democracies, that our founders did have it right that if you're going to bet when it comes to measuring public sector integrity, you want to put your bet on democracy. On average, democracies have higher uh, public, integrity, public sector integrity scores as measured by Transparency International. There are a few notable exceptions like Singapore and Botswana and the United Arab Emirates, uh, but uh, those are few and far between. On the downside uh, this Transparency International zero to 100 score where zero is perfectly corrupt, 100 is uh, perfectly clean, the average democracy still falls below the midpoint of that scale and over a quarter of the world's present democracies have a public sector integrity score that's below the autocratic average around the world so government by the people doesn't ensure government for the people uh, francis fukuyama who argued in a recent book the end of history with the rise of democracy after the fall of the berlin wall that we've reached a socioeconomic terminus and he since scaled back that argument My book, consistent with his walking back, his argument will say democracy is not enough. Our our work remains unfinished, and we still have to keep thinking about these checks and balances that our founders worried about, and what further can we do? And that's the closing chapter that limits the amount of profit that supply-siders can extract.
0: And and slack has diminished the last 100 years, 50 years, would you say, in many democracies?
1: Yes, when you look at least over the last 20 years that Transparency International has been doing these annual evaluations of countries around the globe, Uh, so uh, there are now more benchmarking mechanisms that help diminish slack, citizen mobility. And also, arguably, the productivity of citizenry. If uh, the more productive we become, the higher the opportunity cost from exercising slack in an nefarious way on the supply side. But it's it still, uh, what got me into the research was looking at a well-established democracy, the United States, and trying to explain how our senators voted. And this was with the mentor, uh, Joe Colt, who, when he was a faculty member at Harvard University, and I was a uh, an undergraduate there before going to MIT, we looked at how senators voted on strip mining to test the economic model. And we were hoping to see to what extent could you relate strip mining voting to pocketbook interests in a senator's state. And one of the striking things was how little could be explained by economic interests and how much more important were non-pecuniary interests, senators' ideological goals. We found that uh, it was amazing to what extent we could explain senators' coal strip mining votes based on their votes on abortion legislation. Senators had vastly different ideologies, whether you were Ted Kennedy or Barry Goldwater, but those interests seemed to matter. And then to see, well, maybe on an individual issue there may be a lot of slack, like coal strip mining, but maybe there's less slack when we elect senators every six years. But even when we looked at the market that meets every six years, there was still a fair bit of slack we were able to determine existed, even in a well-established democracy. And and, there have been, whether it's ideological goals or pecuniary goals, prior to the passage of the Stock Act a few years ago, there was a study done of senators and congressional representatives' market portfolios. And what these researchers found is the average senator Republican or Democrat, their market portfolio grew by 12 percentage points more than the market over that period per year. The average congressional rep, it was six percentage points higher. So either we've elected people who are a lot wiser than Warren Buffett when it comes time to picking winners, or there's something about being in power that also accrues financial benefits according to these studies that were done then.
0: And speaking of votes, you also you discussed the B-1 bomber as an example of um, the, the one that has parts from 48 states.
1: When I teach economics to students, public goods is one of the arguments we give for government intervention. And from a purely economic perspective, that argument's warranted. But what the book argues is you also have to worry about the politics and the interests that crop up you know, when you have legislation involving public goods like national defense. And uh, from an economic perspective, we can argue that those public goods will be underprovided. But from a political perspective, we can argue that the exact opposite will happen that when it comes to a B-1 bomber, we have to worry about individuals on the supply side of those public goods, the people that produce the bomber, individuals that benefit from those public goods, and how concentrated are those interests relative to the average taxpayer. And Rockwell International, who produced the B-1 bomber, apparently had a photograph of the bomber with a huge map of the United States on the same wall, and there was a thread connecting each part in the B-1 bomber to the congressional district in the state where the part came from. And this uh, single weapon system covered 48 different states and over 400 congressional districts. And uh, Air Force General has been quoted as saying nowadays when you see a weapon system like that, It's not actually an airplane. It's a collection of spare parts flying in tight formation. And uh, there's a term in the industry called a double hitter, when you can locate the production of a part both within a state and a congressional district where the representative sits on the relevant Armed Services Committee.
0: What else is left to write on this topic? What's your next research project?
1: And I'd never heard that quote before about cutting your readership in half for every equation you have. It, it's uh, light on an equations: so one equation, two tables, one figure. So hopefully, it makes the job easier on um, uh, the reader. We'll reflect on it for a couple years, and but issues of um, how large the P is and um, how you can relate it to the or the profit uh, supply side or extract. And the various factors on the right hand side of the equation, the interplay between them. Looking at issues, too, of typically political scientists just look at the top rung of political power. And we can assume, uh, for example, that if there's a lot of turnover, it seems to be competitive, so maybe there's not much slack. In the system, but the book points out we've got to look below the top rung and what else, who else remains in power. And a classic example is Italy, where the top person's turned over 44 times since World War II. Looks very competitive, and yet Italy, on most measures, comes up as close to being economically unfree. And because they're below the top rung, a lot of the bureaucracies remained in place that has inhibited the growth uh, of, of Italy. The growth has been negative over the last decade when you look at the annual average. Or a case like Mexico where there's a tradition of every six years the top person turns over and we've got to look below the top rung at what remains encrusted on the supply side. And then fundamentally looking at what other checks and balances Do we have, can we avail ourselves the Swiss debt-to-break rule that significantly limited the growth of government in that country? And what can we learn in the United States and other democracies? And, And then how can we promote greater transparency, applaud Transparency International for the work they've done? Steve Ballmer, just a few weeks ago, one of his newer projects is to make government spending more transparent. He was struck how little we know about tracking our dollars and uh, helping to disabuse ourselves of the notion of what actually happens within government. We have a positive outlook, and yet we need to be a little more guarded. Uh, Deirdre McCloskey, an economist at University of Illinois, makes this very telling point that most of us around a dinner table or a cocktail party would agree that uh, we should really focus government spending on those individuals that are less well-off in society. And so she runs the following thought experiment. Let's say we took a quarter of what the federal government takes every year, which is about a trillion dollars, and we decided to steer it all to individuals below the poverty line. What we would end up with is the average family of four below the poverty line, making about $110,000 a year. And her fundamental point is the fact that nothing close to that happens should make us um, wary about how either leaky the bucket is or what is actually going on in terms of whose interests are being served when we watch a democracy like ours operate or India uh, or uh, when we look uh, within an autocracy which we tend to be more suspicious of.
0: You argue that special interests have a influence disproportionate to the economic stake they have in an issue.
1: I have colleagues at primarily University of Chicago that will argue that will end up with an efficient outcome in politics because of competition. And so we shouldn't be as wary of outcomes. And a classic counterexample is sugar import quotas, where we can show, and it depends on the year the study's done, but the average family in the United States now loses about $50 a year because sugar prices are higher due to the restrictions placed on the imports of sugar from countries like Haiti and the Philippines. Who benefits from those? Uh, there are certain states in the US, like Hawaii, like Louisiana, that can grow sugarcane, and the rise of sugar prices redounds to their benefit. Their gains, though, collectively, the typical study shows, are between $500 million and a billion dollars less than what we consumers collectively lose each year due to sugar import quotas. But for $50, you and I, Joe, don't have much incentive to show up and lobby our congressional representative or senator to to get rid of these sugar import quotas. The clout that producers of sugar in Louisiana and Hawaii can exert uh, and how much more concentrated their interests, they're much more motivated to show up in Washington to make sure these quotas remain in place. It's a symbiotic effect, so it's a demand side interest in the case of sugar import quotas, it's the producers, but they're locked up with representatives from their states that also have a vested interest in keeping these quotas in place. And then as the saying goes, politics makes strange bedfellows. So once the price of sugar goes up, you see this alliance emerge with companies in other states that produce substitutes for sugar, like high fructose corn syrup and Archer Daniels Midland, arguing with their representatives in Illinois that we should keep the sugar import quotas in place. So it's this odd alliance. And and in democracies, we often see the symbiotic in a relationship between demand and supply side special interests uh, it's like the double helix in dna the four nucleotide bases and cytosine always bonds with guanine adenine with thymine so when you get a screw up in the code on one side of the helix there's likely to be a screw up on the other side that further promotes the likelihood of overreplication or cancer that operates to the detriment of the overall organism in this case the body politic
0: What else are you reading right now?
1: Matthew Ridley, a big fan of his, he's got this wonderful new book called The Evolution of Everything and how many of our cultures or mechanisms don't arise through top-down approaches but rise up organically because things work. And and we'll even look at why a place like Rochester, New York, is so successful at optics and or Another place uh, like Detroit uh, with the strength historically in the automotive field, and he'll argue it's, it's not so much the universities in the area, but it's the entrepreneurs, the Bauch and Loms, the George Eastmans, in the case of optics that made Rochester uh, so successful in optics, and that redounded to the benefit of universities like University of Rochester and RIT. So that that's one. And then uh, Angela Lee Duckworth has this wonderful book out called Grit, She recounts at the beginning of the book how when she was growing up, her dad used to tell her, consistently, you're no genius. And then a couple of years ago, she won the MacArthur Genius Grant. The fundamental thesis is that uh, talent is overrated, that what really matters is identifying your passion and then developing the confidence to pursue it. And how somebody like Darwin, who was so influential in science, would tell people, I've got a horrible memory, I can't remember names, it takes me so long to get concepts. But he would say, I love biology. And that love helped him connect the dots and forever beneficially impacted the way we view the world.
0: Alumni listening who are not familiar with Alfred University, tell them something they might not know about it.
1: It's the second oldest of proud progressive heritage, started in 1836 second place in the country to admit women, the first one to open up the full course of studies. So Oberlin beat us to the punch, but if you were a woman, you had to study home economics and you couldn't give public speeches until 40 years after the other institution's founding. So here, very uh, much more open to diversity. Um, One of the first to admit African-Americans and and Native Americans, one of the top schools of art and design and uh, the top ceramic engineering program in the country. So learning a lot more <laughs> while I wasn't an engineer at MIT, learning a lot about uh, Snell's Law and refraction indices and uh, because of the strength of the glass science and engineering components. And, and we have more alums at places like Corning than any other university because of proximity and because of the strength in ceramics and glass And we're doing a survey with them right now, and we anticipate the average number of patents per capita across these 300 alums will will come in pretty close to three patents per capita. So a very tinkering, roll-up-your-sleeves university, and, and very proud to be affiliated with it.
0: Mark Zupan, it's the author of Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest, and now available at your favorite local bookstore and online. Mark, thanks for your time.
1: Very good.